Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Super common for everybody to hate drawdowns in markets. I mean, loss aversion is a very powerful psychological phenomenon and people have a tendency to sell at the bottom. I, think, I do think part of what is a value from hedge funds, you know, with redemp redemption gates and private equity being locked up for long periods of time is that you can't sell at the wrong time, right? And, and so... People who are proponents of, of liquidity say you have this optionality embedded in the market, right? Because you can sell when you need to, you can buy and sell. The, the reality is that people don't do a great job of that. We do the wrong thing. We sell when it's down and we buy when it's expensive. And virtually all the research proves that. That's what we do. So if liquidity, instead of being a positive option, is a negative value option, what you mm -hmm. want to do is not own that option. You just want to lock your money up in good investments over the time frame that you need them right and walk away what's up guys welcome to the greatness machine i'm your host darius mershazny i'm so pumped to have you here with me now listen the greatness machine is about two things number one people are living their passions and number two those who are creating greatness in the world doing both of these despite the odds against them each episode, we're going to feature interviews of world-class speakers and business leaders showcasing their origin story, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now, so it can help you step into your greatness within your own life, business, and career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years in entrepreneurship as a CEO to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation and messages, and I'm stoked to have you guys here. Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. And boy, do we have a special guest. My friend Chris Schelling is in the house. And for those of you guys that have seen The Greatness Machine before or listened to The Greatness Machine, you know we're about two things. People are living their passions and those are creating greatness in the world. My friend Chris is creating lots of greatness and living lots of passion. So we're going to be chopping it up here in just a second. Um, man, I'm so pumped to have you here, dude. I mean, we got, to, we got to spend a little bit of time together, talked on the phone, had lunch. And I just got to say, man, you blow my mind. You impressed me so much. So I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks for coming up, man. I mean, that's huge praise, man. I appreciate it and excited to be here. You know, ditto. Uh, I, I've been thinking a lot about some of the stuff that you've been talking about recently. So I want to give a little background about how I know Chris. So, so Chris works for Venturi Private Wealth. And we'll be talking about that in a little bit here. But um, he works for Venturi and... One of the founders, and uh, I guess Russ is the CEO. Is he CEO? Yeah, founding partner, CEO. Yeah, yeah so, so Russ Norwood, who's the founding partner and CEO of Venturi, is in my Tiger 21 group. And he comes into the group, and he's just like, ah, I got this guy that started working for me, and he's worked for the company. He's just like, just like gushing about how pumped he is. I guess he tried recruiting you like way back, and it didn't work out. And then finally, like it worked out that it made sense for you, you guys, to partner together at Venturi. And he was super pumped, and was just like blow, like just, just like just blowing all the praises. Like he's man, this guy's amazing, and he he has all this methodology around how do you invest in privates and how do you invest in alts. 
And I was like, I want to meet him. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so we connected. I actually got your book. We'll be talking about that better than alpha. And so, yeah, Russ was the catalyst for this, but, um, yeah, that's how we got to know each other. We had a great lunch and we talked, Oh, Oh, are we doing it? There you go. I got yeah. yours right there. Yeah. The book swap. notes in it. Yeah. <laughs> and so we had lunch and, uh, it was, it was a great lunch and we talked all about, you know, my book and, 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 uh, and about your thought process. And the one thing that I was really kind of impressed that we have in common is we, we both have a, a pretty deep respect on for, you know, values driven business. And I would say that that's probably, we're probably unusual in the world of investing, at least at the moment. I think it's a, it's obviously a trend that's, that's picking up and increasing. Yeah. My, my mic is just being a total asshole right now. All kind of issues with that. <laughs> yeah. I broke my mic. So uh, th th that's what I get for being like a beast with my mic. Hey, um, it's live. We've got to roll with it. Right? Yeah. We're rolling, man. We're rolling with it. So yeah, I was impressed. You know, you sent me an article from against what it was institutional investor, all about values in business, right? And and yeah. so so we're going to be talking about that. I can't wait to chop that up. But do you mind if I give a little bit of of your formal background before we dive yeah. into the conversation? Sure, ha happy, awesome, happy to chat about it. You guys, so Chris is an author, educator, and director of alternative alternative investments for Venturi Private Wealth. His degrees in psychology, business, and finance. He's an expert at incorporating insights from behavioral finance into investment decision-making. He's also uh, currently a contributing columnist for Institutional Investor and has authored over 60 articles on investing. And as I mentioned before, he is the author of the book, Better Than Alpha. We were talking about that. Formerly, he was the director of PE at Texas Municipal, and he was also an adjunct professor at University of Kentucky. So, man, you're an accomplished individual, my friend. Well, you, you've kind of set the bar pretty hard, pretty high here. I mean, you're laying it on really thick, Darius. I got, I got a lot to live up to, I guess. I always like to brag about my guests when there's a lot to brag about. So, <laughs> so you know, um, I want to back up. So, so yeah, like I mentioned before, Russ basically was like, "Oh, you gotta, you gotta, like this guy, Chris is amazing." And and the biggest thing, like, and we'll be talking about is, let me just back up. So the, the way I know Russ is through Tiger Twenty One. So th those right. of you that don't know Tiger Twenty One is, it's a lot of like high net worth individuals family offices, folks, a lot of entrepreneurs, business people who all get together with the intention of, you know, managing wealth, right? So a lot of that has to do with investing. There's a lot of investments that come through Tiger 21. Uh, you can go check it out, tiger21.com for people interested in learning more about it. But we, we see a ton of investments. And it was interesting because I kind of saw Russ just like, I don't know, it, it was just like, he and I kind of shared the same vibe, which is like, Man, there's like no vetting of these, like not no vetting, but but there's like it's like it's like it's like your buddy showing you a deal, right? There's and, and I'd say Tiger has some of that, less of that probably than 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 probably before, like in the past. But it was like, man, like everyone's killing it, everyone's making money, everyone's talking about the upside, and, and like one of the jokes we had in Tiger is like everything pays a fifteen percent IRR, mm -hmm. right? Which is for an investor, it's kind of a funny thing to hear, but it's like minimal risk. Yeah, right. You know, so so Russ and I were like talking about it. He's like, "Oh, you got to you got to meet Chris. He's my head of alts, and like he has some really interesting perspective around how to protect yourself in investing." But um, you know, and so that, that's what got us to hook up. But I, I, I that got Chris and I connected. But I would love for you to give like your background. How did you get into investing? Yeah. How and, you know? How are you like today? You're the head of director of alts at sure. at Cherry. But how did you? What was your road to getting into this this side of the the investing world? Yeah, I mean, totally. I, I think it's important to understand. And I think there's a lot of things that you can bring from kind of my background to helping individuals invest in private markets. And frankly, I like to say, you know, it's not the hundred funds that 
you, you, you commit to, it's the 3,400 you say no to. So it's really about right. managing risk. But so I started my career um, at a convertible bond shop outside of Chicago in the early 2000s, spent first 10 years kind of in investments, kind of backed into investments, didn't really know what I wanted to do, graduated with a degree in psychology, uh, but was good at math, kind of went back to get an MBA after a couple of different jobs and realized like, well, finance really is it's the intersection of finance and math. And so it's like this perfect kind of uh, real world empirical kind of testing scenario for how people think and how they interact with stuff. And I, and I liked it. I spent the first 10 years in Chicago um, in a variety of roles, all in alts, a couple of different hedge fund research roles. I was at an investment consultant. And it was really after the crisis where this investment consultant went through um, a couple mergers. There was you know synergies and the handwriting was on the wall. So kind of decided we have to look nationally or stay in Chicago. And the banks were, you know, all consolidating at the time. The exchanges were all disappearing. So if we stayed, it was going to be a real tough environment. Uh, and I actually met, you know, a guy who went on to become a good friend of mine, TJ Carlson. He was the chief investment officer at Kentucky Retirement Systems. And he had been in Chicago at another investment consulting shop, literally going through the exact same merger and kind of exodus. He was needing somebody with all experience. So we connected, really hit it off. I spent about four years working for him, lived in Lexington, uh, worked at the Kentucky Retirement System and deployed about $2 billion across hedge funds, real assets. TJ left there and came down to Austin, recruited me down about a year later. And, you know, Lexington is nice, but it's no Austin. <laughs> so it was a good sell. Uh, we, we came down. I spent about five years or so at at the Texas Municipal Plan, which is mm-hmm. you know, 35 billion bigger plan, uh, and and deployed about three billion to uh, to private equity. But you know those those 10 years I spent in public pensions, you know, really really kind of laid this groundwork for thinking through what your money does and and how it interact how you interact with the money and how your end beneficiaries interact with the money, because at those plans, you know, those are real people. They're you know, school teachers and government workers right. and their retirement checks are twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars a year. That goes to paying their mortgages, their their groceries. And so really own that obligation to preserve that capital, manage risk, and generate return for those clients. I mean, my my mom's a retired school teacher in Illinois and she's in one of those plans. So that made it like super concrete to me. Can I yeah, interrupt man. for a second? Because yeah. I think some, some I, I think obviously for seasoned investors, they'll, they'll they'll understand a lot of what we're talking about here. But what is the difference between what's what's an alt? Do you mind like kind of give us oh, some background sure. on what what an alt is and why did you get into that side of the investing investment business? Sure. Sorry. Yeah. No. Alternatives are basically they're better described by what they're they're not. They're everything other than stocks and bonds. So it can include hedge funds, private equity, private real estate real assets, private credit, you know, derivatives, things that use non-traditional investment strategies. And what attracted me to them was that they were more, uh, there's more innovation going on in those markets. Uh, and the opportunity to actually add value to clients is there. They're also more complex. And so there's greater risk. It just is a more intellectually stimulating area of capital markets. Now, when you, when you say greater risk, is it because like, listen, what, why would, is it just the complexity itself that creates the risk or uh, transparency? What do you think creates the risk for alts compared to stocks and bonds? Public, yeah, public, public. all those things, all those things. There's greater legal risk, right? There's less transparency, more complexity. There's greater dispersion of returns. So 
what that means is what what's a good outcome, what's a bad outcome in stocks, right? If you have a bad manager, you might trail the stock market by 2%. If you have a great manager, you might trail or beat the market by 2%. Well, in private equity, for instance, if you have a bad manager, you're going to trail the average by 10, 15%. You might actually even lose money. So the difference in outcomes is so much wider. It really requires more, more work. So when you say work, what do you mean by that? Due diligence? Uh, just yep. building a more diversified portfolio? What does more work mean? Both, both of those. You hit the nail on the head. It's, it's digging in and understanding what you're doing, understanding the legal risk, uh, the investment risk, operational risk, all those things. And then building a diversified portfolio. We like to call it the three D's. Uh, you need deal flow. You need to look at a lot of no's before you find the yes. You need to do diligence and then you need diversification. And so when you're looking at, at, at deals and, and I used, I'm coming at this from an operator standpoint where I, I was out there getting a private debt from, from wall street. Right. Right. Um, when I was doing it, that was my first experience with going through a private equity type of capital raise. And, you know, we were meeting with a lot of comp names in the, in the private equity world that people would know KKR, Fortress, you know, uh, gosh, O'Shaughnessy, you know, UBS, all these different guys. Right. And so we were meeting with them and what I, and I went through a few due diligence processes and, and these people like, dude, they dug in hard into the business. And what I found was, mm -hmm you know, that, that they really wanted to understand the risk and then they charge us for it accordingly. But w w one of the things that was, was, I guess, surprising to me was, you know, I guess the way, how do I put this? W when we were looking, we were in all, we would have been an alt investment, I guess. Right. Like, yeah, so to right. speak. Um, you know, the way I felt like they were mitigating their risk was there that they were fishing in certain ponds that they understood. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, so an example would be, there was a company that, that you've probably heard of called CPP Canadian pension. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they love like our particular asset that we, we did was mortgage servicing rights. They love MSRs. They get them. Mm -hmm. They're super complex, mm -hmm. but yeah. that's in their wheelhouse. Right? right. So when you looked at, at building portfolios, was it that you were like industry agnostic or were you saying, no, these are the ones I know. I know telecom. I know, you know, logistics. Like, how did you go about like, well, what's your philosophy on this, I guess, from a, a, an investing standpoint and B, a money management standpoint? So as a person that's investing in funds, I think you have to have a, a couple of different philosophies. Do you want to make sector calls or not? Right. And I think it's hard to do in the short term if you're a really long term investor, like a wealth manager or a pension investor. Right. You should be thinking 10, 20, 30, 40 years really down the road. So maybe leaning modestly or at least my philosophy is lean in modesty, modestly into sectors that have better growth potential healthcare, technology, things like that, but not betting the farm on that. So we did have an overweight at Texas Municipal, probably 35%, 40% technology. That, that was part of the drivers. Looking through to the manager level, right? If you're picking individual businesses, you better really know those sectors. Now, I, I kind of view that as important in a fund. Do they know what they're doing in those sectors? And generally, PE falls into two distinct camps. You have generalists and you have sector specialists. Most of the generalists, though, even organize their investment team around sector competencies. And so what they're going to do is they're going to be a pool of sector specialists inside one big fund. And that's generally how they mitigate their risk. Now, there are some firms where they are completely agnostic and they move across sectors. But I would say even those firms, what they tend to do is they'll they'll do anything X a couple of sectors where they really don't know. So they will do 
will look at anything X healthcare and financial services, for instance, because they're telling you tacitly, we can't get our hands around those risks. So, I mean, the industry really does have those, those skills to dig in, like you said, and they know the business is cold. So backing up for a second, you, you, and I mentioned this earlier before, uh, did you, were you teaching at U university of Kentucky before or after you wrote the book? Uh, that was before. Yeah. Some of the material from the class went into the book. Yeah. So I was going to ask, I said, what, so what yeah. class did you teach at university of Kentucky? It was called intro to alternatives. And, you know, I'd had this thought that I kind of wanted to, like I said, my mom was a teacher, wanted to teach for a while. Uh, and had a, a friend at, at UK cliff, uh, Chris Clifford, who, who covered hedge funds and did a lot of actually had industry background and an academic background. And he just said, Hey, you should come, you should come teach for us. And I actually enjoyed it. You know, had, had a couple hundred, uh, undergrad students senior year. But after that, I thought, well, why not try to make something out of this material? Cause I basically designed the class from scratch. Um, and, and that a lot of it became the genesis for better than alpha. Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius from Shazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stop me from fully enjoying the little things in life. From canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose, itchy watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now, and let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear uses directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and Supply & Demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, 
all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. And so so when we start thinking about, and, and you know, I got introduced to alts. Uh, you know, it was funny. Uh, you know, I had exited my business, so I had some liquidity I had to do something with. And I started talking to, uh, you know, wealth managers, essentially. And a lot of them were like, yeah, we'll put you in these, you know, large cap funds, you know, and, you know, you'll be in this large. And prior to that, I had a money manager, a great guy and smart guy. And he, he was doing a bunch of dimensional fund advisor stuff. And he's like, yeah, you know, it's, it's all portfolio theory. You're in 10,000 stocks and, mm-hmm. you know, they can beat the market because of their cost of trades is less. And they're actually, you know, market makers. So they're making money on the trades. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember being in the market, being in this, I think I got like an average of 6.74% return from 2012 to 2018, right? And I was like 10% weighted in internationals and 20% mm-hmm. in, you know, what was it? It was like like the the emerging markets and then two different large cap. Cal- and I remember I was like, oh, I hate this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like this is, it was painful for me. I, I, I and, and so when I started talking to wealth managers, one thing that came out, which really got me into the world of vaults, was they were talking about the Yale Endowment, yeah. right? And so I saw that. I was like, oh, this is I, – I never even – like, like for, for whatever reason, I'd heard of private equity. I'd heard of venture capital. And, and a lot of that felt pretty risky because you're placing bets into these single in, investments, right? And I had done a couple, and they went to zero. And so I was like – then I then I realized, no, there's this whole world. So, so when you start looking at – you know, any portfolio creation, or you think about the Yell endowment, which is what, like, they're like almost 70% out of yeah. the stock market. Right. How do you think, how do you think of like what's happening in the world of endowments right. when you think of what, with what you're doing? And then re- I guess cross-referencing the, the stock market in general as sure. an opportunity. Yeah. I mean, that's also part of better than alpha. It's kind of tracking this evolution of the efficiency of marketplaces and they're all tied together, right? All these concepts are kind of linked together. You see what happened with the the endowment, I mean, honestly, endowment performance has been among the best uh, investment long-term performance of any investors in the world. If you look at um, some of the, the the premier Ivy League institutions and some of those who have kind of modeled those and done it the right way, right? There's kind of a wrong way and a right way. Their their numbers are you know 11, 12 percent over 20 years. They were early adopters of alternatives back when they really worked well. So they were in you know the early PE funds and hedge funds back in the 80s, uh, let alone 90s. And today their average is, you know, 50, 60, maybe 70% in all. So if you look at pensions, pensions have kind of followed that wave. And I think there's two sort of approaches. There's one who've looked at the Yale model, which is both a process and an outcome. And there's those who've just modeled that outcome and said, all right, we're going to replicate that. That doesn't work. There's a process to how you go about finding market inefficiency and allocating to, to good things with prospective returns. And the ones that follow that process have had pretty good outcomes. But pensions today have 25, 35, 40% in, in alts. Same thing for ultra high net worth investors. And there's this trend where, you know, there's increasing democratization of alternatives for everyone because they generally speaking have, have beat that kind of 60, 40 bogey that you referenced, you know, six, 7% over, over a decade. Like today, I think you have to do it a little different because markets are just way efficient, more efficient than they used to be. That's, that's just an inexorable fact of learning and adaptation and, and competitive dynamics, right? You got 
you got way more people engaged in public markets today professionally, right? Smarter people, more information, the amount of information available created today on a daily basis swamps like the aggregate data that was available in the in the market totally in the in the 90s. Like so there's just data ubiquity in public markets. Everyone has it. Processing power is massive. They're pretty dang efficient today. Um, but that same sort of evolution of markets getting more and more efficient as you have more and more market participants, it's happening in alternatives. So and I like to joke, they're called alts, not sames, which means when everybody is doing the same thing, like you probably aren't doing alts anymore. You're just doing, you know, traditional plus. Yeah. Interesting. Or the new version of traditional, right? Um, right. It's, it's called, it's called by a different name. What, what do you, um, so when, you know, one of the reasons I can, one of the reasons I didn't like, and I'm in, I'm actually in a fair amount of public equities now, but, but, but I'm in a lot of alts, you know, everything from real estate to real to multifamily syndicates to, I think we talked about this, like I'm in like some litigation finance and some yeah. just really funky stuff that I, I, I'm like, oh, this is cool. I, I get it. You know, right. like I understand why it can potentially, you know, they're not huge opportunities, which is probably mm -hmm. why institutional isn't really chasing it. Right. Cause it's That's right. these funky, weird little, you know, potential outsized returns for the risk I'm taking. But when, when you look at, um, you know, the markets in general, or you look at these alt investments and, and my, my financial advisor, she's like, look, you know, I get Darius. I don't like to look she's like, I'm going to, I told her, Hey, I'm going to stare at the screen. So I don't want to, I don't like public equities. Cause I look at, I look at it all the time and it's like, I, I, I won't be emotional about it, but I don't, it's, you know, it's down, it hurts. And when it's up, it feels a little good. You know, I get little endorphin hits. And so what I like about my, my apartment building I own is I don't know what it's worth. I just know it like, seems like it's worth more over time and it, the rents keep going up, you know? So I said, oh, that's really, I mean, essentially it's an alt, right? It's an asset that's not publicly, that's not liquid and it's not public, you know? And so the, where I was going with that was, you know, if that's, if, if to your point, if it's not alts, it's the same, right? Cause a lot more right. people are in it. So, how how is it that people like if your goal is to either a beat the market or, or or let's just say get in the alts to from the position of having more success or getting you know yield that's better than I mean it's hard to say with public public yields have been so high the last couple of years it's like you know that's that's not normal right I, I think when I invested with my for, for, former advisor he's like you should expect seven or eight percent return over the next ten years mm -hmm. and and it was like six point seven and then it was like twenty seven percent you know mm -hmm. in two thousand nineteen and so I, I just said yeah like it's a little volatile it's a little bumpy uh, mm -hmm. what my biggest concern with it and why I liked alts better was I was like 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 people are like oh you got you just got to be ready for like a fifty percent drawdown or a forty percent drawdown in the market I'm like what you yeah. know, like, like I, I don't, I, I don't want to know when that happens. Like, I, like I'm not going to sell my my real estate when the market's down. I'm not, gonna, I don't really know what it's worth, and I'm not going to pay much attention to it. How, right. how do you think about that with like alts or like what is your thought process about some of the things I'm talking about? I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, right? Like, there's behavioral elements to it. There's actual market dynamics and mark market structure issues. I mean, maybe I'll touch on the behavioral side first. I, I totally, you know, it's. It's it's super common for everybody to hate drawdowns in markets. I mean, loss aversion is a very powerful psychological phenomenon, and people have a tendency to sell at the bottom. I think I do think part of what is a value from hedge funds, you know, with redemp redemption gates and private equity being locked up for long periods of time, is that you can't sell at the wrong time, right? And and so people who are proponents of 
of liquidity, say you have this optionality embedded in the market, right? Because you can sell when you need to, you can buy and sell. The, the reality is that people don't do a great job of that. We do the wrong thing. We sell when it's down and we buy when it's expensive. And virtually all the research proves that. That's what we do. So if liquidity, instead of being a positive option, is a negative value option, what you mm. want to do is not own that option. You just want to lock your money up in good investments over the time frame that you need them, right? And walk away. So I tend to believe that's a component of why private equity outperforms. They 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 don't get drawdowns. They're not worried about that. Interesting. Um, I mean, and the other thing is, you know, market risk is it's kind of backwards today. We think about beta as driving equity returns when that's not really the case, right? It's all the individual stocks add up to the beta. And so we kind of put what is a outcome as like the causal factor. And we're worried about like, what's the market going to do? What's the market going to do? Volatility isn't risk in the long run. It's a behavioral risk. It makes you, it makes you make bad decisions at the wrong time. What the real risk is over 10 years is what's the probability of the stock market return, right? Your advisor told you it's like 7% over the next 10 years. And then we went and had a 27% year. Well, that pulled forward those returns, right? Because your multiple went up. And so now from this point forward, your expected returns probably lower. I would handicap it more in four or 5% type range over the next decade, right? And there'll be, there'll be noise along the way. So to me, volatility is noise. Right. It's the stuff you have to ignore because it drives bad behavior and the expected return is the real risk. Now, it could beat that. It could be lower than that. But that's how you should be thinking about it. Well, wow. so so when when people get all amped up over a uh, post covid 2020 government just pumped, you know, a couple trillion bucks, a few trillion bucks into the market. Oh, my my, my stocks doubled. Mm -hmm. You're like, you just stole tomorrow's returns. Like, yep. That's you just pulled it forward. So there, therefore, you know, the volatility is going to be what's going to be. The market should return because that's really just an estimate of what the, I guess, fundamentals of earnings in the market, right? That's mm -hmm. how they're coming up with those numbers. Is that yeah. kind of the right way to I think mean, about it? Short term, short term returns in in public equity markets are really driven by multiple expansion contraction. So that's a sentiment thing. Am I going to pay higher price for next year's earnings or lower price? And that whips around in the long run over five, 10 year periods. Those all average out. And what you get is earnings and earnings growth. So the earnings yield plus the earnings growth is what drives equity returns over the long run. So you can actually look at longer and longer and longer and longer periods. Equity market returns become more and more and more predictable tomorrow. It's literally a coin flip, 50-50 what this S&P does over the next year, a little more predictable, 5, 10, 15, 20. So when you really start to look out, is 4 or 5% you know, super compelling? I mean, don't get me wrong, 60-40 is still like the core of portfolios and people need liquidity because they have to you know, pay for their kids to go to college. They have to pull some money out to buy a, a house that they actually decided, hey, you know, we want to buy a new house. So those things happen and you can't lock everything up in private markets. But to me, the more attractive returns are definitely available in all still. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Darius here. And by now you might know that I'm passionate about a few things. Pizza, pink unicorns, core values, and down and dirty, interesting conversation with some amazing people. However, the biggest one that I've spent most of my career on is entrepreneurship and scale. You see, look, my first few years in business, I spent like probably a good five years of my life getting my freaking teeth kicked. I mean, really getting crushed. 
And I learned a lot during that time period. So I spent the greater part of the last couple of years helping entrepreneurs scale their businesses in a meaningful way without going through the same growing pains that I did. And what I realized is that CEOs and business leaders don't know if they can scale and thus they do the right thing at the wrong times. This causes them to lose clarity, lose momentum, alignment, and the bottom line is you lose money. And look, you don't have to do that. It's why I created what I call the scalability assessment. And you can access it 100% for free. That's right, guys. There are perks to listening to The Greatness Machine. All you have to do is go to DariusScale.com. That's D-A-R-I-U-S scale, S-C-A-L-E.com. And there, you can check to see if your business is set up to scale properly. It's going to give you a scalability score at the end. And it's also going to give you some clarity on what you can do next. Once again, guys, that's www.itsdariusscale.com. Once again, guys, it's DariusScale.com. And now back to the show. So let me, let's move over to your book. So, so you taught the class at UK and then part of that was your, te- your introduction to alts. You're teaching them what alts are and how they work, I'm yeah. guessing, and all the, all those different things. And we can even get into the, your, your theories around vintage, which I think is fascinating. But um, what, what, so tell us what, what prompted you to write the book? Yeah. So my thoughts kind of on alts were evolving. And I think you have to do that. Like I said, they become, you know, more broadly disseminated in investor portfolios, more and more competitors are doing them and those opportunities evolve. So this was kind of at the point where I was, I was, I was wanting to migrate away from hedge funds. And what I had seen was, you know, traditional hedge fund strategies, fixed income, ARB, convert ARB. I mean, we can talk about those in more detail, but the real core of what hedge funds were when they were accepted had become broadly replicated and performance had really deteriorated, uh, wasn't justifying the fees or the liquidity. And so at the same time, you know, a lot of big institutions were doing that. They were divesting from hedge funds and kind of moving out of the asset class. And I just, I just didn't kind of believe in them as much anymore and thought that you needed to do stuff different at that point to make the same types of returns. So began to look at illiquid things like lit finance, like you were saying, and other things like that, and then true private equity. And so all these thoughts were kind of coming together and like, all right, look, there's this inexorable transition from what looks like alpha to becoming a beta over time. Everybody learns about it, right? They start to write papers and books about it. And then you got a million ETFs that are launched that all do the same thing. And now it's no longer alternative. Um, And so you can find that across markets. And really, you should be thinking, you know, along that same spectrum when you're assessing what's available today. So let's let's look at private equity, for instance. It's way different than it used to be. And it's not a thing anymore. It's a lot of different things. There's like six trillion in private equity capital today, two and a half trillion in dry powder. So that's money that's going to get put to work in the markets. Wow. 20 years ago, the entire industry wasn't even a trillion dollars. Wow. So that's totally different. And if you look at the multiples being paid different market segments, they don't even look like the same asset class, right? Mega funds are competing in a segment where the number of companies is more comparable to the number of companies in publicly traded stocks. So valuations there look a lot more like that. However, lower middle market, small market, very, very different, right? For instance, number of companies that, you know, have revenue of a hundred million to down to 10 million. So small firms, but real firms, right? They've got market product market fits already. It's already established. Like these are real firms. They're probably all EBITDA positive at that size. 
there's a thousand companies like that public, but there's probably about a million people trying to find the needle in the haystack, right? Mm -hmm. Buy side, sell side, mutual funds, hedge funds. That's a lot. However, in private markets, companies, same size, 10 to hundred million, you've got probably 250,000 businesses in that yep. market segment. If you go down to 5 million, you probably add another 700,000. So you're talking about way bigger pool to fish out of. Now, the number of people that are fishing out of that pool, there's still a lot, but it's probably not more than 100,000, 250,000. So the chances of finding an inefficiently priced company, right? Because they're all both companies. They're just public or private. They're all competing right. in the market. They all got clients. They're all trying to hire employees, work with vendors. You got a better chance of finding something that's cheaper, growing faster in a better market there. And, and that's what it's all about to me. It's market efficiency, right? It's not really alpha or beta. It's just finding a better pool efficient. Yeah. And, and like probably a wider distribution too, as far as the types. I mean, it, you're, it's not a needle in a haystack. It's a pile of needles. You just got to right. figure out which that's ones you exactly want. Exactly right. 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 Yeah. And, and needles. Yeah. It makes sense. Like, like my, my foreign business, we our, our ROE for like eight years was 33%. Right. Mm -hmm. I remember people would look at that and they would be like, how did you guys do that? I'm like, cause we're freaking hustling motherfucking, you know, right. like, we're like entrepreneurs. You know? I mean, I've seen funds where they're like, yeah, we had our first exit and it was, you know, whatever, 20, we grew it to 25 million of EBITDA, but it still had uh 50% top line growth, uh, like 50% EBITDA margins, 95% free cash flow conversions. You're like, why are you selling that business? We're like, well, you know, we got them, we're moving on to other stuff. The, the opportunity to find companies like that over and over, it's real. It exists. You're, you're not going to find that, you know, in, in large cap public companies. Yeah, it, it was funny. I, I, my former CMO, she worked for McDonald's. She said, look, you know, McDonald's, they were trying to move the needle like 1% a year. That, that would be yeah. that's because there's so so that's so right. much, so much movement. You know, it's a lot. Right. That 1% is a lot of money, right? Right. Because it's distributed over like, I don't know how many stores they have, but some insane number of stores, right? Whereas... Right. 1% in a $100 million company is nothing. It's like right. a million bucks, you know, like that doesn't, that doesn't, like no one's really excited about that, you know. It's a denominator uh, effect, yep. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's, uh, it's really interesting. And so, so you guys, um, so would you, would you mind kind of talking a little bit about, about like your thought process around, you know, from an investing standpoint in alts and, and maybe the, the same could be held true for uh, public equities, this idea of allocation by vintage, you know, and, and I know that that's something that, that Russ really like was, he's like, oh, you got to talk to Chris about this, this idea that like, you're not just buying one year, you're kind of spreading your risk over multiple years. And you and I talked a little bit about this over lunch, but I'd love to hear the, for you to kind of explain this to the audience. Yeah, no, it's, it's basically the equivalent of dollar cost averaging, right? So dollar cost averaging in public markets is you set aside money and you invest a certain percentage like every month or you pay out of your paycheck every month, right? And, and what you're doing over time, when you dollar cost average, is you're actually buying more when it's cheaper. So, right, if you're putting if you're putting a uh, hundred bucks into something and it's it's you know it's trading at twenty bucks, right, you're only going to get five shares. But if it drops down to ten bucks, you're going to get ten shares. So you're actually buying more when it's cheaper oh. over a, over a whole period, right? Whatever that average price was in the market, your cost basis is below it, just because of how dollar cost averaging works. Now. It's kind of the same thing in private equity, not exactly, but in private equity, your you know businesses are always sold. I mean, that's how you made your you know liquidity is you built a business, you sold it, you built a business, you sold it. Well, 
that means money's coming back, right? So you can invest in a business and then you get money back and you've got to continually redeploy. It's kind of a treadmill. In my head, I think of private equity like a treadmill. Now that treadmill is getting faster and faster, but because you've always constantly got to put money back out to work, what you don't want to do is put it all out in one year. Because private equity, people will tell you it diversifies and it's not correlated to the economy. That's not exactly true. It's it's pretty highly correlated to economic activity broadly. If you look at private equity deals that were done in you know 2006, 2007, they were not good. If you looked at deals that were done in 99, they were not good. And so you want to spread out your capital over a four or five year period. Well, I see, I see people, you know, I want to put, I want to have a private equity portfolio worth $5 million. Maybe that's 10% of 50, whatever. So I'm going to go put $5 million out. That's that, that exposes you to vintage year concentration. What happens if the economy, right? gets smoked. We can't predict what's going to happen in the future. It, it certainly could happen. Well, you're going to have a, a poor outcome. What institutions do is they will stage that capital in over a four or five year period. How fast do you want to get deployed determines how fast you should put that capital to work, but you shouldn't do it faster than at least three years, three to five is kind of typically. So you divide that five up and then you literally go pace it in a model. And that's kind of what we're working on is a way to do that for clients that want to hit a target. It's a multi-year plan uh, and we'll help you put it out over time. And so, um, and we probably don't have time to, do, to, to, to go too deep into this because I wanted, I really want to talk about yeah. this idea of creating alpha through culture and, and, yeah. and values, which I, which is a topic that I know is near and dear for you. But what, you know, for entrepreneurs or for people out there that get some sort of liquidity event, like that's, you know, sitting on a pile of cash in this environment is scary, right? So mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I can get my 0.1% return, you know, oh, and I, by the way, I don't have an income anymore because I sold my business or whatever it is that I sold. Right. Yeah, how, do, how do you, I mean, because I didn't do that. I, I just allocated, right? Yep. Um, now I have a lot of 2020, uh, 2020 early 21 alloc- mm-hmm. uh, allocation risk, vintage risk. Right. What, what are your thoughts around that for, you know, people that are having an event where they get money right. or they get, come into some cash? So that's where like the wealth planning actually comes in and you sit down and you design a totally diversified portfolio. So there is a role to play for public markets and, and maybe it's still a 60, 40, but that 60, 40 is a small percentage of your portfolio. Right? We have other things that are more tactical and nimble and they can move as markets decline and, and move around. And then you have assets that you can invest in quicker. They may not be overnight where you can put your capital to work, but things like um, private credit type strategies, again, litigation funding, you can call capital a lot more quickly and get it to work. Lower risk strategies, you know, more of a income type oriented stuff, but you can put a portfolio together that's, I think, more compelling than what you can get in public markets for, for similar risk. And then again, then you start to stage in private equity. So those are like, to me, the big, right, those are the big levers. It's It's almost this matrix of like six things right equity debt volatility illiquidity yeah you're just like like those those are uh, you literally when when i was um when i was interviewing advisors i i i, I said i have four levers yeah. <laughs> and, and 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 those were and i said liquidity was a big one right volatility was a big one That's and right. then and then the other ones were, were portfolio distribution and whether, whether I was doing equity or, or, or debt. And so sure. that, that, then and I told him, I said, I like, I, I don't like volatility. I don't really care too much about liquidity. And I, I'm 
pretty conservative, but I like to take a swing at the bat with some of my stuff. You know, there you go. So not a lot of public equities, maybe a tiny little bit of of public debt, but you have more tactical stuff there that reduces vol, and then you have private debt, private equity. Yeah, and that and that's kind of where I'm landing more right. or less. There you go. Yeah. So, so which which brings me to uh, well, I want to spend one minute on this because it's just a fun topic, uh, yeah. but then we'll go to we'll do the we'll go to values and investing, uh, crypto, which is <laughs> which is like high vol, super liquid, kind of yeah. maybe. I mean, yeah. I, it's but I, I was talking to a friend of mine who uh, they run a, a a fund of funds here called Hazor Partners here in Austin. Sure, yeah, and, you know those guys. Gosh. Darsh, yeah, his brother Harpreet and I went to Stegan together. So we were talking yesterday. And I said, I said, crypto is fascinating. I said, it's basically if you had a bunch of series A companies that were fully liquid and yep. had a shit ton of volume around That's exactly it. Right. You know, it's lottery tickets. So I've been thinking about this. I own a little bit of it and just kind of play around trying to get smarter at it. I think you have to kind of probability price it, but it's hard to do, right? You've got you've got lots of paths to where it's a zero, just like liquid VC, right? Maybe it's right. regulated out of existence. Maybe it's technological obsolescence. Maybe it's a fad that just disappears, whatever. Um, so all of those could be zeros, but, but there might even be a 5% probability that it is worth a million bucks. Well, if all those other ones are zeros, right? 5% times a million is still 50 grand. <laughs> so if yeah. it's trading below what you think that probability is, it's, it's a lottery ticket that you get paid to hold. So, I, I mean, you know, we don't do a lot at Venturi and and kind of don't formally have a house view, but I think it makes sense to have a, a little bit as a lottery ticket if, as long as you realize that's what it is. What, what do you like? What do you what do you would you buy? Well, I mean, I've got a little Bitcoin. I've got a little Ethereum and there's like three or four other little tiny ones that I just have a little, little bit in. Which which so tiny some ones? weird ones. I mean, yeah. Graph, Fetch, Fetch AI, just a few. Yeah. OK, I got I got Cardano, okay. uh, Polkadot. Yeah, I like the the blockchain ones, the ones that actually right. like if this technology, yeah. like I view it as a technology, but yeah, I will right. I will admit I bought thirty five dollars of Shiba Inu. There you um, go. All right. <laughs> that was that was like I I I just had it in my account. I'm like fuck it, I'm gonna buy it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's like my wife's favorite dog, so I've thought about buying it just just to show her. Yeah, we're not getting the Shiba Inu, but I've actually. <laughs> I got you a Dogecoin though, and here's his sister Shiba Inu. Uh, yeah, I I I'm fascinated by it. I actually think if the technology does what people think it can do, that it's a revolution in the world in the world of technology. And this is like totally. it's like 1996, and we're talking about the internet. That that's how I kind of see I it. I think that that absolutely is a possibility, which is why I said like, what if it's worth a million? If that's a five percent probability, like Bitcoin, well, that's worth fifty thousand bucks alone on that probability outcome. So yeah, I do think, so here's another, we can get off the topic, but the, here's another thought. Like what happens though, if, if quantum becomes real, like quantum, I think is more earth shattering than the internet even. And like, if quantum becomes real, then blockchain isn't worth much either. So interesting. Like, I'm not saying that, yeah, yeah I'll just posing another, what if scenario. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I was talking to my business partner about that. This my former business partner the other day because he, he he had I sent him to Andreessen Horowitz's Crypto Academy, which is actually a pretty cool way to it's, it's a sixteen something, um, but it's a really cool way to learn about crypto. And that's what he said. He said, he said, look, like it may even turn into nothing because of quantum, you know. And, mm -hmm. and I said, I said, all right, well, I put enough in where if I lose it, I'll, I won't be happy, but I I won't cry that much either. It's, yeah, it's that's, dabbling. That's how you size it. I size it so if it goes to zero overnight, it's like, well, that kind of sucked, but. <laughs> Yeah. 
Oh, well. Yeah, I, I view it as buy early stage seed investing. That, that's mm-hmm. how I view it. So I want to talk about, you know, when we were at lunch, we had this conversation around, really around how you can increase alpha by 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 people caring about values and people building culture. And, and I always view that as, I, I always said that's the multiplier, right? Like mm-hmm. for me, I wrote a book called The Core Value Equation because I'm like, my secret weapon is creating a core value driven organization. I can make more money. And there's tons of data out there like Gallup does their totally. State of the American Workplace where they interview 500,000 employees. And there, there's data out there that like the black and white binary data that says you get in the number they've come up with is 21% more productivity out of engaged employees. And I think a big proponent of that is culture, values, giving people something where they're a part of something greater than themselves. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how this, how you're using this or how you're seeing this come into the world of investing, which I think, you know, when I look at investing, I came from mortgage banking, which is really, you know, it's a finance driven or, you know, industry. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like um, strategic PEs versus financial PEs. The world's yeah. full of financials. People that are like numbers driven, show me the balance sheet, show me the income statement. Yeah, fuck that fluffy stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, they they give it very minimal credence. But if you ask them about it, they're like, yeah, culture is important. But then they don't really, you know, there's a disconnect there. How do you right. see that as being a, a maybe an asset or, a, or an opportunity in investing? Yeah, well, I mean, I've been thinking about it for a long time. The way I, I kind of frame it is there's this spectrum between parasitic finance and productive finance, right? Parasitic finance is, right, one counterparty basically just extracts wealth from the other, right? right. And, and like the worst examples are like Madoff and frauds and cases like that. But there's legal stuff too where it happens where, you know, the fund just does shitty, but they t- take their management fees and they take carry whatever. And like, that's not value added. So the other end of the spectrum is, I mean, you have altruism, which is kind of like off the spectrum. You're giving stuff away. But the other end of the spectrum is, right, the allocation of capital, right, makes both parties better off than they would have been without that allocation. There's a a private equity firm in Dallas who's got a great example about, like, how this actually works. It's Again, it's not altruism. Uh, Right? They bought a... Who is it? Is it Satori? Satori. Yeah. Have you ever heard their story on the construction firm? Uh, no, no, I I know Satori because I know Darsh was there and they're part of the Stegen, which is what I graduated from Stegen Academy. But yeah, I'm right, familiar with right. that. So, so Sonny tells a story where they uh, bought a construction company and, you know, it bumped along at kind of GDP plus, you know, a couple of percent. So three, four percent growth for years. One of the first things they did when they bought that company was they, they figured out how can we, you know, show the employees that we care but make an investment in them that will also help them be more productive. And what they settled on was $300 steel toe boots. I don't know the, the brand of company, but like a premium brand, all the workers would have, number one, known what this boot was worth and not have splurged on it for themselves if they'd had gotten just $300 in, in cash, right? So it was something that would be personal and help them you know, be productive, but but be something that they could touch and feel every day and kind of like, wow, this was really nice. So size the boots for everybody, you know, bottom $50,000 investment in the company. But those employees put those boots on every day and went into work being like, yeah, this is, this is, this is nice. Uh, and they told their friends and pretty soon there were more construction workers that wanted to come to work for this business. And you know what the biggest bottleneck for growth for like 20 years have been? Uh, let me guess. Workers. They couldn't hire reliable workers. And suddenly they had people knocking down the door to come work for them that were all hard workers. They grew by 50% a year for like three more years. So was it was it considerate and kind? Yes. But 
it wasn't ultimately pure altruism. I mean, it was just better capitalism. They call it conscious capitalism. Right. I kind of think in investing, it's the same thing. Like, how can you tie what you do as an investor to this broader purpose? It's like connecting the me to we and money. And I'll I'll give you one example of some research that I've done personally that I think is really cool. So for the last seven years, I've done personality profiles with GPs. Okay. Get close to the finish line. I sit down with the two partners and I say, I want you to take this test. It measures your aptitude. It measures uh, your integrity, kind of where you fall on the, these dark triad characteristics. And it measures how you make decisions like high energy, low energy, analytic, intuitive, et cetera. There's also a portion of it that it, it, it like ties you to specific areas of interest. Kind of like in high school when we took the aptitude test and it said, you know, Darius, you should go into science and Chris, you should mm-hmm. go into education, whatever. Well, these tie pretty closely to how they create value in their businesses. I found I'm like, wow. oh, that's interesting, right? Creative. So creative means, well, you know, in venture capital, it means creating a product, creating a revenue model, creating, you know, maybe a new market all entirely. Then there's enterprising, which is scaling a business, you know, taking it from EBITDA operating to positive, whatever, institutionalizing it. And then there's financial and administrative, which okay. is a lot more aligned with, you know, multiple arbitrage, use of leverage, balance sheet optimization. And guess what I found? Venture capitalists score way higher on the creative interest. Growth equity guys score way higher on the enterprising. And buyout guys score way higher financial and administrative. Interesting. They, they do what they want to do, right? They're connecting their value creation in their business, how they generate value for their clients to what they intrinsically are interested in. And it's it gets even cooler. Industrial buyout funds, they score high on mechanical, right? Even within buyout, people that are more growth, they score less on financial administrative and more on on enterprising. So, I mean, I think as long as you can find people that are actually aligned with what they want to do in the business, Mm -hmm. create value in a way that is valuable for all the constituents to it, that that's, you know, that's kind of like the investing equivalent of, of, of conscious capitalism, right? It's kind of like moral investing or something. Well, yeah, it's uh, well, uh, you know, I, you don't know this about me, but I'm I'm heavily involved with uh, using the, the the strength finder tool. So really, it's it's aligning people's talents to their their roles, sure. right? And right. It's, it's just being done in, in a in a new in a different way, which which the, you know, this goes back to this idea of conscious capitalism and engagement. People tend to be engaged, meaning they 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 are in flow when they're doing what comes naturally to them and they enjoy doing it. And so it only makes sense that these totally. managers who are like doing the types of private equity type of investment that aligns their natural state Absolutely. of being, that they're going to do it like more joyously and with more engagement and have totally better, better results. Right. I love that, man. Yeah, Shoot. I, mean, I got to throw the name flow. Like, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. You got to just say his name because it's the greatest name in psychology ever. That, yeah. That's a great book. <laughs> I love that, man. Yeah, I'm going to check that out. Um, well, man, we're, 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 I feel like we're just getting started, but 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 we got to get wrapped up here. So where can people find you? I know, you know you're at Venturi. Where can they find the book? Where, where can they hook up with you if they want to learn more about the things you're doing? Um, I'd love sure. to give the, the, the down low. Yeah, absolutely. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. I've got you know my, my page there and I'm open uh, to accepting connections. You can reach out to me through work, VenturiWealth.com. And then uh, Better Than Alpha is available on Amazon. It's got a Kindle version as well as audiobooks version. So 
we'll guys check connect it. with anybody who wants to chat check it out better than alpha and chris man you're such a joy to hang out with and to talk to and i appreciate you very much and guys you got to follow this guy he's doing some amazing things and i really appreciate your sincerity and the the, the way you're approaching investing i think is it, the world's going to be a lot better as more and more uh managers and you know folks in the investing world i think see things the way you're see, you're seeing them so i appreciate you very much my friend uh, thanks for having me i think it's moving that way and and excited to be part of it definitely guys uh check it out uh you can check out the book better than alpha and like we mentioned venturi wealth is where you can connect with chris as well as uh on linkedin so guys don't be shy check out chris buy the book and we'll see you guys later peace out You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Guys, The Greatness Machine is all about two things. People who are living their passions and those who are creating greatness in the world, and we feature these messages and speakers so it can help you step into your greatness within your own life and your own business. If you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform you're tuning in from, and leave us a review. We love getting reviews for the show. If the episode made you think of someone who is leveling up in their business and life, print screen it, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers, and after all, we're all here to learn from one another. You can also go to our website, www.thegreatnessmachine.com. That's www.thegreatnessmachine.com. And on there, you'll see special tools to help you scale your business faster, show notes for the episode to help you integrate the lessons, and you will also get links that came out during the show. So on there, look, you can also grab a copy of my book, The Core Value Equation, which is a resource for helping CEOs and business leaders establish core values from their teams that don't suck. And mind you, a lot of them suck. Get access to this and more at www.thegreatnessmachine.com. With that said, you guys, look, thank you so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We out of here. See you guys next time. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.